Hello and welcome to ClapperCast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Clapper Editor-in-Chief, Jack Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to be joined by George Lewis. Hello there. And Carson Tamar. Hello, hello. In today's episode, the team are going to discuss Apple TV's release of Tom Hanks' World War II action thriller Greyhound, Netflix's attempt at supernatural spear franchise with Charlize Theron starring The Old Guard, finally, Corey Finley's sophomore effort, Bad Education, starring Hugh Jackman and Alison Janney. Let's begin with the Tom Hanks vehicle, Greyhound. I'm a thousand miles away. Air escort to Greyhound. You will now be out of range of air cover for the next five days. Safe travels to England. How many crossings does this make? This is my first. I got some. Most likely you both. He's trying to slip under us! Fire! We have a kill. Distress rocket, sir. Acquired by Apple TV after being sold by Sona, Greyhound follows US Navy Commander Ernest Krauss, who has been assigned to lead an Allied convoy across the Atlantic during World War II. His convoy, however, is pursued by German U-boats in what would become known as the longest, largest, and most complex naval battle in history, the Battle of the Atlantic. George, you're reviewing Greyhound for the website. Let's start with you. I think everyone had an image of what Greyhound might be when uh, it obviously was passed off from, from Sony to Apple. You've got this kind of big uh, like naval drama, Tom Hanks starring and writing the screenplay as well. And then what we get is actually a 91-minute, essentially, chamber piece thriller, much in something like Dunkirk, where there's very little... Uh, time spent to characters it's more focused on the the scale of war so that that was a a surprise to me actually i was going in expecting like a two-hour 20-minute sweeping jingoistic american war film and it, and it really isn't that uh i think the strength in that is also its weakness in that we get these set pieces essentially one long set piece broken up by maybe a couple of minutes of dialogue before we get to the the next set piece and i think the opening in in that works really well because we're, we're thrown in there's no attempt to unravel the military jargon none of that's explained really and i think i think that works really well for me personally there's like no progression beyond that and it is essentially just the same thing over and over again is uh how many how many times can we dodge this torpedo or another incoming ship and it kind of regurgitated events uh due to the budget as well the budget isn't like astronomical for something like this it's only about 50 million so you, you can see where they're restricted and so i think what most people what some people might really like from it that the strip back feeling actually to me hindered it and I had no entry point into it after the initial strong opening. I think I might be uh, the only one who's rather positive on Greyhound. Um, after viewing the film I think the biggest thing I came away with that I actually felt the pain that Tom Hanks recently came out and said that it, it was almost a crime that this was going to be able to be witnessed in a cinema and, and I I completely understand that after watching the film, in, in, my, in my opinion. I think the one thing I need to sort of caveat 
by this is that I was sent um, a screener by Apple. I have an Apple TV. I have it in 4K. I have a 4K television. Um, so to watch that in the experience in Dolby 5.1, I, I listen to it with the headphones. Now, I don't think this will change 90% of the experience if you go into it and you don't enjoy the plot, the acting. But to make that experience more cinematic and going by everything that I did, I, I was left not stunned, but I really, really didn't enjoy this. Um, I'll, I'll mention the sound design first, which with the headphones on each crash of the wave with the boats and the U-boats rising was astonishing to listen in 4K and 5.1. It's a film that is most definitely meant to be witnessed in a cinema. I can understand that. But obviously, with Sony now uh, obviously selling it to Apple, things have changed. I think for the most part, Apple have convicted on on having that cinema-esque experience. It does have slight faults because, unfortunately, I think for the film, it is a thrill ride of, of an intense cat and mouse. But at the end of the day, you're watching in your front room or on your laptop or on your iPad or on your phone if you're uh, you know, into that David Lynch-esque mobile phone viewings of, uh, of, uh, of cinema. So in the environment I watched it in, I, I was thrilled, but I can understand that if anyone watched it without that, it would definitely hinder it. Now, we spoke last week with George, uh, quite ironically, about you shouldn't really have to get the full experience out of one medium if you have to go to five or six more wells. So I can understand that that shouldn't necessarily be a positive for me, but I must I just have to caveat by saying it, it, it really did elevate the whole film. Um but the sound design and score I, I, from Blake Neely, I was—I I honestly thought it was near enough perfection. It's like thunderous domination throughout, and that cat and mouse chase—it is—it is a bottle episode. I mean, the the, the breaking a bad episode fly in which they're in the um, meth uh, the meth lab, and the you know the, they never escape the uh, the actual room, and it's just like a character piece. This is essentially that. That's usually used in TV to stop budgets from flowing up to you know hundreds of thousands to millions so for here it can work you know it can't it does work claustrophobia wise aesthetic wise in the cabins although we don't really experience that because it's constantly on the move so they're sort of fluided to to, to the film which i think keeps you in, it keeps you entertained for the most part it is sort of like restrictive but it's not it's not completely stopping you from enjoying the motion of where this plot or where these characters are unfolding there are a few issues with structure. I think it's constant use of fades to black didn't really help. It takes you out of the momentum of the film, which as what George said, if this is a if this is a, a bottle episode and you're having to say, sit there and experience it all, you should have that in one one um, swoop, like 1917, the Sam Mendes film, in this uh, purported one shot edited, which to anyone with a keen eye, it's, it's clearly not the case. I was hoping that would be more of the case here. Um, and then to sort of split it up in these fades was sort of a contradiction to the whole momentum of the film. That being said, I was entertained throughout. I did like the thunderous domination of everything. Aesthetically, it, it's there. It's, it's, the camera moves quite well. I mean, Aaron Schneider directs with a gripping and dynamic uh, aesthetic at all costs. As mentioned, the fluid camera work from cinematographer Shelley Johnson utilizes space exceptionally well. I think coupled with a bombardment of terror and fear entangled, it's like a hectic cluster of thematic way as well. Although I think the scene at the beginning, 
that interludes the whole whole thing regarding his faith, Tom Hanks' character's faith, and his relationship with his girlfriend, or soon to be wife. I think that was slightly underwhelming. It didn't really have the push to to care about this man and his crew. And I think for the most part, I, I do agree with George about within the actual running time of the film itself in the in the, in the in the, the holes of the ship, especially within in the uh, well, where the, where the film's positioned throughout, I didn't really care about the characters. I just wanted them to survive because I understood the fear. And I think that that then becomes a, another issue where these five U-boats, not using the Jaws technique of Spielberg's like, infamous thing, is not by not showing the shark, you have sort of this idea of more tension. I think it's actually a Hitchcock. Um, so I don't want to misquote anyone here, but it's sort of the idea that the more you don't show about something, the more frightening it can be because ultimately your mind then works fear into its own perspective. So I understood what they were going for. However, even though there is carnage and there is terror or on show, I never really felt that the stakes were all that high. And I've not really been able to touch upon that, to be honest, in my own sort of feelings and, and opinions. But for the most part, I think for an Apple tier acquisition, bear in mind it's made by Sony. It's definitely a Sony picture, most definitely. So I think I don't want to sort of say that this is the first Apple TV start point of what we can see in the future. But I think I, I would not question their cinematic ideas or identity because I think they're trying to replicate that here the best they can do. But if this is a sign of where to go forward with Apple TV, I think they're on the right track. So this movie had a lot working against me. I'm not typically a big fan of war films. And as you mentioned, being out of the cinematic experience on the actual big screen, I think does really hurt this movie considering so much of its identity and drawing point is the big scale action. Uh, this is not a film that really condenses well, in my opinion, especially to the screen of a laptop, which I was forced to watch it on not having a nice big Apple TV. Um, it just, it also doesn't look that good. I just never really got into the action. I think the CGI of the visual effects of like the waves, I thought that all looked pretty, you know, bad if I'm being completely honest. And I just felt like I was given no reason to care about really any of the characters as you mentioned. Uh, this is a movie that's very focused on its action and trying to create tension in the action. Um, but as the action just doesn't really evolve, um, as was mentioned by George, a lot of the action is just the same throughout the entire film. Oh, we have a dodge torpedoes, there's a submarine. Um, I just found myself getting really, really bored by this film, if I'm being honest. Um, though the best part of it is easily Tom Hanks, in my opinion. Yes, he has so many character points, like his faith and his girlfriend, which we flash back to, which, you know, of course he has a girlfriend that he's dreaming of, um, because why not? We have to give him depth somehow. But he does have this side to him where he's haunted by what he has to do, even as everyone else is celebrating when they shoot down an enemy ship. He talks about the souls that were taken from that. And he's very aware of the life lost on both sides. And that dynamic, I thought, was very engaging and interesting and was the biggest drawing point and most captivating thing regarding the film. Um, but overall, I would say this is just a very boring film that didn't have that great of action, and especially outside of the cinematic setting, just wasn't able to suck me in how it wanted to. Maybe it was on the big screen, it would have worked better, um, but being on an Apple TV with this release, it really just wasn't for me. Yeah, just to add, add upon that, Cass, and I think I agree with you about uh, the Tom Hanks link. 
anyone else in that sort of rural, you know, America's uh, dad rural, if, if you will. I think that it, it is the talent of Neil Malone that carries this film with Tom Hanks. I think if you take him out, I think you can either put anyone in there to, to do a justifiable job and you, you probably come up with the same returns. I don't think Hank's talent really shines through here as, as being sort of a, a defining role in his career. I don't think anyone looking back on this will be particularly fond of highlighting. Well, he was good in Greyhound. I think having him in this role might sort of be detrimental to the overall impact of it because I think, I just think if an audience comes here for Tom Hanks, I think they'd be deeply disappointed. And then again, if you come here for, for the action, Again, it is it is slightly repetitive. I think that's a good highlight to, uh, to mention. It, it is a film where you will see the same predicament four or five times over, just with different cinematography. And to that extent, I think it's going to alienate a lot of people to sort of really get invested and engaged. And again, to go back, I think the, 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 the girlfriend link if it's there to sort of move the audience in wanting Tom Hanks to succeed, I think that Schneider, the director, really underwhelms on that front. And, and that's a significant issue with the film where if he's writing that purely, that, just to go a bit further, that scene for me feels like it's put in, in post where the, the film's been completed, but there's no drive. So it's just his religious beliefs and it's his idea of of doing his job, but but retaining his humanity and his morals. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic to have during a war. I mean, unfortunately, we have to mention this person's name, but Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge does an interesting exploration of that idea and that identity through a character who goes to war, World War Two in particular, and doesn't use his firearm. I think that's an incredible dynamic to have and sort of this subvert expectation of the war genre. It's just a shame really that that's then hindered by another secondary plot that doesn't go anywhere with his wife or his girlfriend, should I say. And even that about his religious beliefs, I mean, that's brought up quite a few times, but it doesn't really dive too deep into exploring that, whereas the Mel Gibson film did um, with an equally, uh, well, with a far better performance by um, Andrew Garfield. Just to t touch on the, the things I said before about the atmosphere of witnessing it in, in, in 4K and a 4K television. I think Apple TV need to be very careful about that because Apple overall, and not to digress about um, the, the company, but Apple have this ridiculous manifesto where they will cut corners in supplying you a product in which then you will have to spend more money to have the full product in your hand. I mean, what they're talking now about not having charges. I mean, they took away... Um, the uh, earphone jack. I mean, I feel that's going to come into their ideology about filmmaking. I think if you're going to have to have a 4K television to experience Greyhound or The Flowers of the Killer Moon in its intended manner, they're going to alienate people, not only financially, but through entertainment. And I can't imagine the worst way for Apple to go than that. I mean, we're already seeing it now where this is Apple TV's first film that's in this genre of, of being a, like a cinematic 
blockbuster, if you will. I mean, Beastie Boys, uh, the story by Spike Jones is not necessarily that, and there's, there's probably a few more missing here. But if this is the direction they want to go, and you have to have a 4K television, you have to have a 4K player, and you have to have Beats headphones to witness a 5.1, I think Apple TV will be done far earlier than, than we can imagine. Not that it'll go Cubie's way or Queeby's way, whatever you will, but it's, it's going to be a detriment to the whole investment of the product, in my opinion. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of bring back to the, the the point about it being... I think this is maybe the first film released in lockdown that I think we could say ought to be viewed on a on a, on a big screen. I think what Jack mentioned about the, the score and sound design, I think they, for me, are definitely the, the, the plus points about the film. I think especially in the opening, it absolutely nails the, the opening. As I said, like, draws you right in you're kind of working out with them in real time about how they're gonna solve this problem about the the submarine that keeps disappearing but i think this obsession with recreating the maybe the realism of war like like dunkirk does it doesn't try doesn't do that like the standard hollywood thing of maybe embellishing the 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 big battle scenes i think it tries to stick like quite rooted in that but I think what you lose is I think this this realism means that there's just not no latching on point. I think it renders the the viewer quite passive and after after the opening for me I was completely passive in this. Like I, I didn't really care about any of the characters. Like Stephen Graham has very little to do in this. I mean Tom Hanks's character has has a little bit, and I'd much rather have the the plot with his with his girlfriend played by um, Elizabeth Shue. I'd much rather have that fleshed out, and it maybe be a little bit cliched than have like the two scenes that we get. I think I completely agree with it. this. Felt like it was added on in post because it's you have the opening of the film and then the ending of the film. There's there's nothing in between. Like maybe even just some kind of nice. Um, transitionary scenes in the middle or like flashbacks doesn't have to be doesn't have to be much but I think it would A it would help uh, fill in Tom Hanks's character's details but I think it would also give the film a much more dynamic rhythm to it as well because otherwise you just for me anyway you just left with this repetitive thing where oh we've got some more German U-boats coming and they do they mix it up with the last one a little bit and I'm not going to spoil it but they do try and do something regarding the enemy towards the end to make them uh, give them like a face not completely anonymous but by that point it's like too little too late I'm completely checked out by them I agree with Carson that I don't think it's actually a particularly pretty film to look at the the waves have got a it's quite hard to explain. There's something about the, the ocean that doesn't look right and it's hard to pinpoint exactly. I don't know if it's they haven't been touched up in, in post-production or, as I said, the, the budget not being astronomical means that they can't kind of nail it to begin with. But I'm going to disagree with you when you said it. Um, this looks like a Sony film. To me, this really does look like a streaming film. Like it could have been on Netflix or Amazon. I, I think from what I've watched so far, and we'll we'll come on to it, the old guard later. They do have a very distinctive look about them, 
and, and it's not cheap, but there's just something off about them when you compare them to like films that are normally released in the cinema. Now, obviously, it's a bit unfair to compare it with like, 1917, which has got a way bigger budget. But there, I do think so far in its infancy, these these kind of streaming films, they do have there's just something not quite right with the way they look and maybe that's just me I don't know if you two are getting that but um, for me I think they kind of need to they need to mark out what's different about them but they also need to obey by kind of cinematic rules as well so I think they've got to pick and choose where they do it and for me I mean Apple are notoriously exclusive like they're this is this is going to stay on Apple forever, I'd imagine. Like Amazon and Netflix are doing way more to kind of get their films out there. Like a lot of Netflix's releases are coming on like Criterion Collection. This won't. So I think that, I mean, I think this is just going to be forgotten about in maybe two weeks, if I'm being honest. Like when you were saying about Tom Hanks's performance, I don't think most people are even going to see this film to even remember Tom Hanks's performance. I think it's just kind of, kind of, fade into obscurity really I do want to mention as well I think I forgot to mention this in my overall point which I've just spewed uh, multiple points of shit about but I think the problem with the cat and mouse chase that most films find is that the climax you're building up to it constantly you have this momentum of intrigue and and intensity and entertainment and action and thrills all, all the genres thrown into one but if the end of the climax of the cat and mouse chase doesn't live up to the expectation the audience have been expected to receive due to the course of the film. It can undermine the whole whole experience, ultimately being a waste of time. I don't think that, fo- this doesn't fall into this category because my, obviously my, my thoughts beforehand would, would say, would counter that, but, but I found the finale, the climax, I found to be incredibly anticlimactic. We were building up to something, and George alluded to it then, there's a certain narrative aspect where the film doesn't give a face to, to the enemy, but it gives an identity to them, which I found very intriguing. It's never really explained, but ultimately, it, it's something that does cause, for me personally, I was, I, I was, it's quite intense and atmospheric. But the final battle per se is over and done with in such a like a short amount of time. I, I, I genuinely believed within five minutes to go there was another twist to come or another another act. And I think that comes with two two reasons. The cat and mouse perspective I've already mentioned, but again, is the fades, the interludes, because it messes with the structure. You don't know what act you're in. I mean, if if you watch a lot of films, you'll understand just through um act structure or moments of plot and, and peril you, you'll you'll understand where, where you about you are but i can i can see this this probably should have been an hour and 40 minutes maybe an hour and 50 i, I feel like there's something you've cut out here or it ends far too too close to, to to the point where it's over it's done and dusted we don't need to go any further but i think that's it for aaron schneider's greyhound let's move on now to the potential netflix franchise starter the old guard it's been over 200 years. Why now? Everything happens for a reason, boss. We have to find her. 
No, we stick to the plan. We find Copley. So we just leave her out in the open? No, we're in the open. We're the ones who are exposed to her. Not like her, Booker. Nikki. Not like her. You can tell me you don't remember what it was like. Whoever she is, she's confused. And she's scared. And she's more alone than she has ever been in her entire life. We'll remember what it was like. She needs us. I'll handle the retrieval. Hey, boss, come on. If we're dreaming about her, she's dreaming about us. That makes her a beacon straight to us. Jesus. She's just a baby. A small group of centuries-old warriors with regenerative abilities fight for their lives and find a new recruit when a pharmaceutical company determines to harvest them for research. It's clear here to me, even when not be, if I, even if I hadn't seen the film, that this is Netflix's idea of not necessarily replicating Amazon's The Boys, but financially trying to sort of recreate a franchise within that realm. Superhero comic book things, they're going through the roof now. We're going to come to the end of it somehow. So for, for, for Netflix to sort of get on that bandwagon now is slightly infuriating. However, having not witnessed or having not read the actual gra graphic novel, I must say I'm slightly happy to say that this is a success. Although I think overall it's an engaging idea coupled with poor execution. And what I mean by that is that every positive I can find with the old guard I find an equally as frustrating negative, but it's not necessarily a negative where it's, this is horrific. It's just, again, to use the word, um, I keep on having to repeat, I found it to be underwhelming. Not disappointing, even disappointing, I feel slightly too harsh, but I think there's a constant use of contemporary music that fades in and out of every action sequence. And when it's used once or twice, it's, it's great, in, and I'm, I'm left there thinking that either comes with immaturity or inexperience. And then it happens for the sixth time, and then I'm thinking, is this a conscious decision, or is this the first cut? And then it happens for the 15th time, and then you figure out you're halfway through the film, and it's just an idea that's, that's implemented that just doesn't work. It's so jarring. And you have, like, a Frank Ocean song there, and it's just... Ugh. It's just clear that Netflix are trying to sort of get an audience and build a, a report with numbers so people just stick with it and then hopefully we'll get a franchise of this. It's, 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 a fra it's, it's, it's not a spoiler. This is a franchise star. You'll find it's, even without having seen the film, you know what they're trying to do here. They're trying to get a lead actress and they're trying to push, to push this to become a franchise. That being said... With each, like I said, each positive, there's an equal negative. I think the biggest disappointment I have with this film, aside from the horrible, jarring music usage, which I, I, I can't find it frustrating enough, I think the action here is is directed with little to no imagination. It, it's it's poor. It's close-ups. The film cuts away and it edits every time you hear a splash of blood. Granted, the sort of this Matrix-esque connection when there's an action sequence where you can hear and hit, but there's not a, a, a Wachowski sort of identity where we pull the camera back and then we see them hitting a wide angle. So ultimately, there's no engagement, there's no stakes, there's no investment. It's, it, it, all the action's so lifelike. Yes, there's loud gun noises here and there. 
and Shelly Stone has a pretty cool axe, but I've never invested all the stakes are never really there because contextually the, these are supernatural superheroes and there is sort of a, a narrative arc where you become slightly more invested in that idea when something happens to a certain character. But for the most part, if I know they're going to come back alive, the, the screenwriter, the director is not going to be able to work with peril, not going to work with atmosphere because we know that they're going to come back. So ultimately they're going to have to write strong characters. And that leads me on to, to another issue. I think that the film alone is engaging with Theron. And I think they'd utilize a very similar theme that Damon Lindelof did with Watchmen where you have a cast list of tropes and then through that genre convention, they then, they then pass, pass, they then pass the baton to a marginalized, diverse character. In this case, is is a, is a young black woman, and ultimately they do this the, the very same thing in Watchmen, and both of them work, and it's an interesting ideal to do because I quite enjoy that it's giving the power to a new generation. It's quite clear what they're trying to do. But I think, and I can't believe I'm saying this because I don't actually like the Watchmen series for reasons I'll, I'll have to go into another time because it'll, it'll be nine hours. It works there because you have 10 hours of investment, whereas here you have two hours. And I can't tell you one thing other than that girl is an ex was in the military. That's it. I have no investment into it. And if I don't have investment with the characters, and you, you're talking about there's meant to be sort of a dynamic here between them, you know, living through the ages and the being in historical events. I just didn't feel it. I didn't, I didn't feel it at all. I mean, there's horrific Photoshop as well that I'll have to get into in a second. But overall, I just think it's slightly just average at best. I just didn't have anything positive to say. I don't really have anything negative to say about it. It's fine. I won't be back for round two, but Netflix seemed to have, have an idea that, that, you know, we're sequel baiting, that we're going to have the old guard three, four, five, six, seven, and probably 15 at this rate. But I just throw it uh, to, to both, to you, you Carson and George. What are your thoughts on this franchise potential start from Netflix? I think I'm probably the most positive one here. I think it is where I don't think it's anything like best of the year candidate or anything even close to that. I think it is just like one step above being average. Um, I think the biggest issue the movie has is just being messy and it definitely needed to be cleaned up. The dialogue is easily, in my opinion, the worst part of the film. There is so much cringy and just badly paced and badly worded dialogue. Um, that sounds so unnatural and so out of place. And just clearly they have a motive with nearly every piece of dialogue that's so obvious and it's not really doing much to seem natural or realistic at all. Um, but also you mentioned the tone with the random songs that play that have nothing to do with the gritty tone and the gritty, you know, oh, we're going to curse a lot tone that the rest of the film is trying to take on. I felt like... I felt like it was misplaced and it was either trying to be two things. I think it could have worked better if this was a series, which continually watching this, and I've not seen the boys, so I didn't get any comparisons with that. 
but I continually felt like with the weird, like how they structure this, it felt like multiple episodes playing out that they just stuck together, made a couple edits and try to pass it off as a feature film. And I think it would have worked much better as a series. Um, but I also think that was trying to, for some reason, get this like teenage, younger audience, which the rest of the film then with the grittiness and what they're trying to do and the tone they're taking, is not for that audience. So it felt very tonally confused with what audience it's wanting to connect to and what identity it wants to have. It continually in those scenes try to create a personality that goes against the personality that the rest of the film is having. And I was just very confused by a lot of the choices in the film. Um, I do think some of the conversations are interesting where nothing necessarily is new in the film. This concept that these characters have been around forever or for a long time, not forever. Um, and the pain and suffering that was caused by that. I was never really interested in the fact that, oh, they were here for all these events or the battles or anything like that. But some of those more finer character details, I'm not going to spoil for anyone. But I thought those were captivating. Those were easily the most emotionally investing portion of the film. Um, and just the pain and suffering that naturally comes from being around for such a long time and the relationships you form through that. Um, I agree the stakes were really challenging with the fact that you know they're going to live throughout pretty much everything. And the actual villain arc I thought was really, really cliched and just really dull. Um, there's nothing in this film that, you know, is super memorable that I'm going to remember in a month or even a couple weeks. But I think, I don't think it's a complete failure of a film. I think there's a lot of elements to really be engaged by and that had my mind at least interested as I was watching the film for the first time. Um, but it just didn't have an identity, a strong enough identity or a clean enough script, um, to really be a fantastic film, in my opinion. I think the one thing I, I do want to mention, Cass, and it's good to have you on here as well, because we both spoke about it a few weeks ago on, on the Pride po uh, podcast, um, on Clappercast, and we were talking about representation. The one film this does very, very well, and I was quite surprised by, is its inclusion of um, the LGBTQ plus community. It's subtle. There's nothing overly sort of, you know, to, 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 to say that these characters are in a relationship, although the film does point out on, on quite a few occasions. But it does so in sort of like a romanticised, really quite poignant way. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't left thinking, you know, they've done a beautiful job there. But I think Netflix here have done a really nice job of inclusion. Nothing too much to, to, to identify that as, a, as like tokenism. But the inclusion alone and having sort of an arc through it and it to be written in quite a, a poignant manner. I, I, and then there's, all the, that's, there's one distinctive, quite clear relationship. There's also an implication then between two of the characters. And I, and I was like, I just found myself to be, because obviously we spoke about it in that podcast. And I think we both have sort of differing opinions of, 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 of the blockbuster. And it's and it's it's needed representation. I think we both agree on that. I think I think I I'm sort of on the the point of the if we're not going to see it now, I I'm I'm very doubtful. Where I think you're a lot more optimistic and and thankfully so. But I was very surprised that they would include it here. I wonder if that's in the the graphic novel or not, or if that's a an inclusion that um the director Gene uh, Prince Bythewood has has implemented. I'm I'm just very interested to know that. But I think just to go back to to how bland it is. It's a very interesting film for, for, for the director to make because looking through her filmography, it's very, 
it's very distinct with a certain palette of genre there, which is comes from drama and romance. So to have the old guard pop there, it slightly it feels slightly jarring to go from that to then to to something like I don't know, love and basketball and and beyond the lights. Films that are distinctively different for genre and palette. So maybe it's not necessarily a maturity thing. Maybe it's just being out of the comfort zone and trying to go through something new. So I appreciate that as well. And I think I think this is not it's not a bad film. I think like you said, Catherine, it's not bad at all. It's just it's better it's best it's better than average. It is. It's not it's not anything that well we'll get <laughs> we'll get to George, um, who might have differing opinions. I feel he will, but. I think this is a this is a good attempt at trying something new with small and quite poignant inclusions of 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 certain aspects that haven't been done before. My only problem is that will this get a big enough response to go for round two? And I said before, I think Netflix is a surefire it will. I'm not too sure that audiences will flock to this just because of the saturated market we're in. But I do want to mention one thing before we move to George. In the last few weeks, George Miller has decided that he's going to go for a, a Fury Road part two or whatever it's going to be. And it's come about that Charlie Theron hasn't been asked to come back because of de-aging issues. George Miller needs to see this and watch Atomic Blonde and understand what a fucking mistake that is not to include the actress. She's not just phenomenal here, but she carries this film. She's clearly the, the best actress here. And she could do this in her sleep. And to watch this and to see how, how fluid she is with, with the action sequence and just how compelling she is as a lead actress. George Miller's making a big mistake with whatever Mad Max direction she's, he's going in, without her, in my opinion. Yeah, so as um, Jack alluded to, I think I've got some uh, different thoughts on this one. I'll, I'll start with the, the positives. I think the the opening sections in uh, Morocco, I think are reasonably well done. But it, it, they're not like mind blown or anything. But I think it sets it up well enough. It sets the the team up. It kind of I do I do agree. That I think Theron is like by far the the best thing about this film. But I think it, it the scene where they they're going through the camp, I think is reason reasonably well done. And for me, that's that's just about where the, the positives stop. Uh, so you, you were mentioning earlier about the the choice of music and why they were placed in action scenes. And it, it just occurred to me now, I think they're put in there as a distraction because the action, it's John Wick. It's John Wick Gunfu. It's, it's exactly the same. And if you watch all the action scenes in this, and there's actually not that many of them, considering... The, uh, what the film was about the action scenes you get Charlize Theron she's got an axe, she'll hurt someone with an axe she'll do like a kung fu kick turn around and she'll shoot someone in the head and that happens over and over again there's no distinctive style in any of the action scenes after the opening one I think the villain who's played by um, Harry Mellon who's like most famous for uh, playing Dudley Dursley in Harry Potter to say he's miscast would be an understatement. And I think the less said about him, the better. I think the whole plot regarding him is lifted straight out of a Detective Pikachu 
as well. I know it's based on a graphic novel, so I don't know how uh, how strictly they've adapted it. I don't know if they've changed certain stuff. I think barring the the kind of title cards in between each scene, you never guess this is a graphic novel either. Like I, I didn't get any of that in this film whatsoever. But the the biggest crime this film commits is it takes itself so seriously. It's it's not fun at all. The characters are going on about the meaning of immortality. I don't care. This film should be good, dumb fun, and it doesn't nail the action. The dialogue is atrocious. There's a plot twist later on involving one character that is genuinely so dumb, they actually undo it in the film as well. They don't even stick to this twist. They kind of go back on it because they realise how dumb it is. Chiwetel Ejiofor, awful in it. You know, he he gave he gave one of the best performances of the decade in Twelve Years a Slave. But then with this and uh, the Lion King, I mean, he needs to get himself a new agent because he's absolutely awful in this. His character just constantly mentions, "Oh well, I had my wife died a few years ago." He mentions it like five times. It's like, yeah, I know. Like you you said it half an hour ago in the film. Like I know what you're doing. What you're doing. I think it's it's too long as well. I think it's like just under two hours doesn't really achieve anything but as i mentioned just these it just takes itself so seriously uh is it kiki james the um, she she plays the marine she was great in if bill street could talk she's not very good in this plain and simple like i appreciate what they're doing kind of giving her the mantle but it's it's a bland character the arcs are not interesting in the slightest there's one line later on, like near the end, where she says, "Um, it's not a massive spoiler. They're preparing like for another action scene, and she says, I don't know if I can do this. You were a marine, like this is literally what you were trained to do. Like, why, why would you say I'm not sure if I can do this? Uh, I think Matar Shonert is completely wasted in this. Like, he he gave one of the best performances of the year in the Mustang." If, if anyone's seen that, he's completely wasted in this as well. But, and there's like biting sequel baiting in this as well. Like there's a, there's a kind of, um, like a reveal, maybe like halfway through the film. And as soon as you see that reveal, you're like, well, that's where they're going to plug the sequel. And sure enough, they do. So, I mean, I don't doubt that there'll be an, another part for this. It, it will probably do well. It's getting quite good reviews. How? I'm not not so sure, really. But, I, I mean, I think there's definitely a market for this kind of stuff. I am not that market, suffice to say. But if, if people get something out of this, and I completely take on board all the points about um, representation, I think, I mean, any other kind of... I, I mean, I didn't really care about those characters, but, I mean, I do think they try to normalise it, which is the best thing to do in these things. I mean, I don't even remember the characters' names, the the two kind of uh, gay characters, but I, I do think it's good to see them in a fairly large role. Like, they're not the main characters, but they play quite an integral role in it. I mean, one of them especially is just like a walking cliche, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's good that, they're, that, they get, that they get a sizable role. I just wish it was in a better film, to be honest. I have a slight feeling that 
perhaps people are putting this on a pedestal to an extent because of how dire the last few months have been cinematic wise. I think even Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV, this is the month, the week in fact, where we get four relatively big releases on each different type of genre and stage. So I think that's probably an aspect where people have just been so hesitant with film withdrawal that they see something that has shades of, and quite, it does have shades and qualities of something interesting and it's, it's sort of pounced upon. And I know you didn't want to talk about <laughs> Harry Melling, but I think, I think we have to. I, I think after, after his specific role and character in Harry Potter, he was always going to find it difficult. And I think Tom, Tom Felton's had the same issue where you become defined through an era of audiences expecting you to play a certain role. And his performance as Dudley in, in Harry Potter is a great example of, of for, for, for the present, it's good. For the future, it's going to be a tough, it's going to be a tough one to get, get away from. And I think with what he's done in the last few years, I think in particular his little cameo-esque thing in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I was relatively surprised with his performance. I think I know he showed up in The Lost City of, of Z, but I don't think many people saw that. And The Current War, another film that, has been bombarded with issues to get released purely because of the Weinstein scandal. So the old guard is, is, a, is a big jump for him. And boy, does he fail here. Oh, it's terrible. It, it, it is bad. I mean, the, it's not detrimental to his, his craft and his, his, his skill as an actor. It's the characters written in such a generic and conventional way where it is that Detective Pikachu, it is that young, sort of flashy scientist billionaire who is behind everything but it's all through like his depiction of wanting to save the world it, it, it's just it's just trope it's conventional to a point of, of oblivion but he just doesn't have anything to work with and, and if this was his biggest thing since harry potter which it is i'd be slightly worried what's next because ultimately he's gone from one trope through five or six films to then play another one and he is, it's clear that this character is one and done. And that, that's, not, that's not necessary to say it's a spoiler. It is. It's a, he's an antagonist to a series at this point. He's not going to be around for part two. Make of that what you will. But he is horrific here. And he's horrific to the point where every time he's on screen, it's almost jarring grim to watch. And if I'm, if I'm watching a, a film where I'm on the cusp of not liking and then liking every other scene, depending on what fucking music choice they decide to choose and when it's actually showcased. For him to then come into the, to the film and, and strut his stuff and spool off these monologues with this conviction that just feels slightly like sickly, whereas he might think he's in a film that's not the film that they're making. It's slightly too sort of Dr. Evil for me. Compare it to the the stuff that's the the bulk of the film, but the whole, oh, we need to use our power for the 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 greater good, or well, actually, they start questioning it, don't they? That's like a main thing they do, actually. Yeah. Kind of, especially Charlie Theron, and then you compare it with him, it's just complete tonal mis mishmash. Doesn't work whatsoever. It's like they are part of two separate films, but neither of them work well. Because when I'm, to be honest, even though he is absolutely atrocious in it, he's like. Maybe the only thing in this, Byron Theron with a pulse. So when when they're talking uh, in the bases and stuff, I was actually 
kind of wishing to get him back because at least then I could laugh at it. Whereas before, I was just just sat there, not engaging any of it, and I was f- screaming at it. I was like, "Why is this not fun? Like, what what are they trying to do with this? Like, the the premise is dumb. Embrace that, and it doesn't at all. It just tries being like this philosophical thing, but it doesn't have any of the style either to pass that off. Like, I'm I knew going in. Well, I thought it was going to be more fun than this. I'm not expecting to come out of it like enlightened or it's not like magnolia or anything but if you're going to try to do that but then you don't have any of the style either then why am i watching this to me there's just no point in it whatsoever i think it's exactly kind of the reason like the that reason that you brought up that so many people are being so kind and so generous to this movie there are so many countless movies out there right now over the past couple years that have tried to be superhero films that just failed completely or try to be very serious action movies like the rhythm section earlier this year that was just bland and fell completely flat for most people this movie is at least semi-competent at trying to create this deeper level of meaning and intrigue, which I think when you see so many films of both action and superhero uh, genres right now that just fall completely flat and just accept doing the bare minimum effort to make an, <clears throat> to make an engaging, compelling story, I think it does stand out to a point, especially right now where there's a lack of new films to where I think it's very easy to look at this film and celebrate it trying to do more when so many the other films of these two genres just fail to even attempt to go to that level. Um, I also just want to quickly mention with the diversity. I mentioned on our Pride special about casual representation, and I think this is a film that does a really good job at that, whether it's race or sexuality. Um, yes, it's aware of its queer identity. It's aware of its racial identity. It's aware of these things, and it does showcase them to a point, but I love the fact that it never really was the center of any drama or of center of any uh, action piece or the center of any conflict within the film. Um, you know, you have these areas of diversity and the film's aware of it, but it's also not trying to showcase it and yell like, oh, this is a thing we're now doing. This is going to be, we're going to try to make a big message about this and just throw this in there to where it really wouldn't fit. Um, and that's one thing watching it. And I, it's funny because since that Pride special, I've been very aware of this kind of stuff after that conversation. Um, but that's one thing I really loved about the film that I thought it did really well. And sadly, it's one point I think a lot of people are just ignoring, which is weird to me considering normally points of diversity, whether good or bad, get tons of recognition. For some reason, it seems like not a lot of people are talking about that aspect of the film, but it's something that at least stood out to me. So I'm happy we brought it up here. I just wanted to ask one final question. Um, so I don't know if this was me, but I found the rules of its own world inconsistent, but incredibly inconsistent. So this, the setup is that they can't die. So that poses an immediate problem. But then they try to remedy that by saying, oh no, they can die. And then, so then you're wondering, oh, okay, is there is there a, a correlation between maybe certain things happening and that affects other characters? To me, that never got explained. So you've got people that supposedly can't die, but they actually can die. But there's no point in time. Like there's there's no set rules about when they can die. So to me, that's just like an easy get out of jail card in the future for them. Because if they need to kill one character, they can go, well, in this point in time, for whatever reason, they can die now. We're not going to explain why, but they can die. 
So there is, I'm not going to spoil it, but there are, there are developments that hint at certain characters losing their power of immortality. But then it, it gets dropped. There's one specific point where they, you think they're going to tell you and they don't. Like They never explain it away. So I'm I'm sat there thinking, well, you're just making the rules up as you go along. So why should I be bothered about anything? Like it seems like they get to a point of, yeah, we're we're gonna try and get ourselves out of a corner, but then they paint themselves into a more because they haven't established any ground rules at all for this world. I can't believe I'm gonna make this comparison, so please forgive me. But I think that they should have done the same thing that Dracula Untold did. For the first 90% of this film, they should have set it in a period during the Crusades of which they talk about. And I think then you have the issue where you don't have the modern day issues of the scientific aspect of it. You have a rustic, grim film which indulges in its action and into, its, into the world's brutality at that point, which the film does sort of convey in both sort of in multiple eras but at least then you have you can sort of toy with the lore a little bit and you can have that supernatural element sort of justified because nobody knows any different so if someone then does if it is that person's time as the film then i must admit very strange sort of implements then it's their time at least within that era you can sort of you use the idea whereas when you use it in the present and you have all this technology and and and, and things like that for then a character just to just croak it without it's just not justified and i think that then helps the sequel baiting of it because if this is all set throughout i don't know the crusades or sao paulo in 1832 which it's never revealed what happened then i don't think anyone cares i think at least if one of them wakes up and they're finding and then they're finding each other with these they communicate or they try to find each other with 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 within their dreams or something but it's also mentioned as well, George, that it's very rare that these people are discovered with this ability. I mean, the last one happened during the Napoleon era. And then Kiki Lane's character is the next one, which is, what, 200, 200 or so years after. So it's never sort of revealed of why and how and where this sort of occurs. Maybe it's the... I thought it was implied that these people are the way they are because of the actions of Charlize Theron's character intervening, or it's that if something bad happens, then the universe supplies this person for a means by a way to sort of, of uh, these tragedies to happen again. I thought it was like the universe giving hope to people or to give hope for something. That's, but it's never explicitly mentioned. I think, even Carson might disagree. Carson might have a completely different opinion. I'll let him, let him go in there next. But I just wanted to say again about it making its, its own rules. If at least then, if by the end of the film, they all wake up in what if Paris or France and it's now 2030, at least then you have sort of a, a sequel bit to go, well, this could be interesting because we could see how it, how it reflects within a modern day society. Because that's one aspect of the film that doesn't convey any intrigue to me. It's never interesting to see these, aside from one scene in in Morocco during the beginning with, a, with the camera, I thought was a very subtle thing for a character to do. It never sort of explores the idea of these people growing old in a, in a techno technological society. The fear of being found out or the fear of, of, um, of the secret to come out and, and ultimately 
them keeping quiet or them being loud and proud about it of, of their, their abilities it still conveys to the end product of them you know with a science aspect so i think it's just a missed opportunity for me but uh, carson if you want to want to talk about how you thought about the rules at all I mean, I really don't have that much to add. Yes, it is hilariously like not explained at all. They even make a point of that in the plot where Kiki Lane's character asked uh, Charlie's character, um, oh, but I thought you said we couldn't die. Now we can die. And Charlie's is just like, yeah, we some of us can. Like it's hilariously not explained at all. Um, and that definitely is probably the worst like part of the film that bothered me while watching it was just not understanding how this world worked. Though I will push back a little bit and say that where you mentioned that they don't explore that idea of immortality and that fear of coming, uh, being found out. I think they do actually, I think that's the best part of the film and the most haunting aspect of it is looking at the characters that they've lost throughout the past. And the idea of since we can never die, quote unquote, never die, they can apparently. Um, and I guess that, you know, even I know we'll talk about this, I think on the next episode, but Palm Springs, it kind of mentions the same concept of where death is not necessarily the same thing, pain, suffering, uh, pain with relationships, all those things that pain us in like life in general for anyone, but especially for them, it's still very real. And without death, there's also no escape from that. So I think that is easily the biggest like stake of the film, quote unquote. And I think it's the biggest, you know, the most haunting aspect of the film that connected with me, at least. Yes, they don't explain it well, but I also don't think that was like, it, where it bothered me, it also didn't like ruin the film for me. I will say there's definitely other points that were just more actively annoying to sit through. So I wasn't necessarily hugely bothered by it, but like it undoubtedly is one of the weaker portions of the film. Just before we go uh, to the next next film we're going to talk about i just want to add one thing and just a question so just just to to get your thoughts on it i'm not going to explicitly say what happens but i'm just going to in a blanket statement do you both think that the film chokes regarding charlie Theron's narrative arc towards the end because it to me it, it's quite clearly conventionally going one way and then it hops out of that for a franchise i just wanted to get both your thoughts on that before we move on in a word yes massively yeah, it like leads one way, and I thought, oh, this is. I mean, the small come comfort. I thought, oh, this is at least moderately interesting, and then they chicken out of it. So, yeah, and the the last shot is absolutely painful as well. Like you can you can see them setting it up. I'm sure you remember the the last shot. You can see they're itching to set this thing up, and when they finally do it, also was. It's like the obviously not the cake for me, but yeah, in in answer to your question, yeah, I, I do think they uh, they chicken out of one plot arc in particular. Yeah, to put it simply, just yes, they do. I think it's pretty like I'd be very curious to hear someone who disagrees with that statement because I think it's pretty obvious that they do. Just regarding that final scene, George, I was hoping that someone would pop up and say, "Is this some type of Suicide Squad?" Just for the uh, just for the banter, but um. Alas, we'll have to wait for the old guard, two, three, four, five, and 18, when they roll around in the next century. Let's conclude now with Corey Finley's sophomore effort, Bad Education. Can I help you with something? They want me to write an article about the Skywalk proposal. It's just a puff piece. They've built the district almost a million dollars, and no one knows anything. If he hasn't reported this, 
you know what this is. What is this? It's journalism. Our readers are 15. A Long Island school superintendent and his assistant are credited with bringing the district unprecedented prestige. That changes when a student reporter uncovers an embezzlement scheme of epic proportions. Carson, let's begin with you. Is this another Fincher-like feature, or has Corey Finley proved he's not just a one-trick pony after Thoroughbreds? So I know a lot of people were mixed, you know, more positive, but still mixed on Thoroughbreds in general. I was someone who absolutely loved it. I will never forget sitting in the theater and just the experience of watching that film and thinking, oh, Corey Finley is the best, you know, director, you know, the best new director. Everyone needs to be talking about him. Why is no one paying attention to his work? So when this film premiered at TIFF, being a Corey Finley film to good reviews, I was immediately just ecstatic for it. And I think it lives up to the hype nearly all the way. Um, where I don't think it's as good as Thoroughbreds, just simply by its like identity and what it's trying to be. Um, this contains an amazing direction from Corey Finley. I think if you had questions on his sense of tension and his sense of setting up different plot elements and just his ability as a director, if you were worried that Thoroughbreds would be a one-trick pony effort from him, I think this you know, should subdue any nerves you had. It is an incredibly well-structured film, incredibly well-directed film. The cinematography is stunning, um, and the acting is incredible. Allison Janney has a smaller role, smaller than I thought she would, to where I'm hesitant to say that we should you know, be saying, oh, she should be best supporting actress at the Oscars or anything like that. She's lovely in the film. Hugh Jackman gives, dare I say, one of the best performances of his career. It is different from a lot of what we see him give, um, but I think it is incredibly interesting. I think just what the film has to say about heroes and villains, it's not an easy film that has a lot of easy answers. Hugh Jackman's character, you know, I'm not gonna get into it entirely here, but he is doing these terrible things, but at the same time, he's motivating youth and he's trying to do his job as best as possible. And everyone respects him and loves him for the result of his terrible actions. And I think it's an interesting conversation the film is having. Um, and I think just all around, this film is engaging, it is well-directed, it is tense. Um, I, I love Bad Education. I think it's a fantastic film, probably one of the best of the year so far. I am one of those people who watched Thoroughbreds and wasn't particularly convinced in Finlay. I think I was always hoping to see a sophomore effort that showcased a little bit more of his style, a bit more depth. Whereas I enjoy Thoroughbreds. I think it's a decent effort. It's very much a di directorial debut for me. That's not, that's not necessarily negative. It's just, it's a start. Let's see how it develops. With a bad education, I will be there for anything he does next. I'm so happy that we've, we've got this on the, the podcast because this is a film that really surprised me. I didn't read anything going into this. I had no expectations whatsoever. I didn't even know that Corey Finley had directed this until after the fact. So this was just a random experience to me, let's say. And coming away from this, I think this is probably one of the best films of the year with arguably two of the best performances of the year. Because to say I was shocked to, to go into this and, and, and for this film to reveal what it really was in all of its nuance, I'm just absolutely blown away. The style, the conviction, 
the craft on offer here is just I'm trying to I'm trying not to be hyperbolic, but I, I think it's masterful. I really I really do. The one disappointing thing about this, and I I think we're gonna to touch on it a bit later because we, we the other two are streaming as well. This has released HBO films in the US and it's released on Sky in the UK. Both of those have a have a Atlantic partnership, True Detective and you know, the Sopranos. HBO get it first, the day after Sky get it. I'm just sad that this was a streaming streaming film it doesn't look a streaming film it doesn't sound a streaming film it, i i will we'll move on to that a bit later because I, I know we, we will talk about it more in depth but just to get onto the film anybody who has a fix needed to be filled by fincher or the social network needs to watch this yes it's not a david fincher film don't go into it thinking you're going to have a girl who drank tattoo or just something towards that crime mystery thriller. It's not like that, but it's it's directed in the same conviction that Fincher would make. And that is the highest degree of accomplishment I can give Finlay here. That that's it's not an imitation, but you can feel the inspiration from Fincher through this. And Finlay takes that, throws his own spin on, which is again nothing like thoroughbreds. Nothing. They're two completely different films. And that, again, is not a negative. I think that then showcases his skill as craft. The distinctive palettes he, he puts on offer is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's outstanding. And, and as, as you said, Carson, this isn't just a simple film where we watch a crime or a conspiracy take place. This is a multifaceted and nuanced feature that explores crime, greed, acceptance on a level that we haven't seen for some time done this well. I don't want to go into specifics, but I will say this. There is a twist in this film where the film takes us to an apartment complex in New York. That's all we'll say. And I'm not going to lie. I was shattered with that reveal. I didn't see it coming whatsoever. I was left absolutely broken. I was mesmerized. It's, it's probably one of my favorite twists that doesn't on the nose lead up to it. It's just sort of like a random arc that's going somewhere and then we get hit with a breeze block. I mean, I, I actually verbally said something out loud when that happened. I was just shook. I didn't see it coming whatsoever. It was, it, the, the arcs are so massive, but the reason why that is implemented with such conviction is because the performance of the character that it happens to follow, um, and, the, and 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 I don't want to I don't want to say his name, but read between the lines. But the conviction of that character and how it's portrayed for the first two acts in such a a wonderfully beautiful way, where you you love that character, like you can see that that character is just so full of energy and life. They love their job. They 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 love the students, they love the work they're doing, the positive work they're doing. And for that reveal to happen, not only is it shocking for the audience to, to understand, I, I, I can't believe that character's done that, but it's not a narrative technique. It's how good that actor is in, that, in this performance. And it's, it's second to none this year. I think we're probably in the next few weeks going to talk about best of the year so far, or probably even early 
conversation on, on, on the Oscars. And I think for, for a best actor, I still think Ben Affleck puts forward a, a gripping performance with alcoholism and mental health and, and the way back or finding the way back in the UK, which is a ridiculous title. But I've got to say that character, who I don't want to name the actor's name just purely because it's a spoiler. I think, I think he just runs away with it this year. It, there's just nothing close to the emotional range, the dynamic of what he puts forward. He, he almost, and this is such a poor lack of a word, but I'm going to use it a little bit. He almost grooms the audience. He, he grooms the audience into just being absolutely engulfed with and enamored with this life. And then it's revealed through, you know, twists and turns. You find out what's really going on. I can't compliment that enough. I mean, the, the, the Fincher aesthetic, it's, it's here in droves. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's not... It's not a Fincher light. It's not an imitation. It's taking inspiration and just just diving into it and, and really getting a, a character-driven story. With I thought that the finale to the film, which again, no spoilers, but the sort of like a, a dream s sequence that I thought was masterful. I didn't. I never really saw it coming. I thought it would just be sort of a HBO film like The Wizard of Lies, where you would just get a, a story with the decent performances with quite sizable cast list and it would just end whereas this says something a little bit further than that and as you said Carson it's not it's not a film that shows you who's good or bad it, there's a blurred line here that it doesn't point fingers we know we know as audiences we know as people we know as human beings what's good and bad but it's not as easy to explore that notion here and I think again massively done with thematic work but just before we move on to George, I just want to mention, I think Alison Jane, I think it's pronounced Alison Janice, so I'll just use that. My excuse is that I'm English. But the other performance in here, which I've just, I think is mesmerizing. Alison, Alison Janney here is superb. What the last few years she's had with, with I, Tonya and, 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 and multiple other sort of bloated cameos where she's involved and she's just outstanding. Whereas here, she has a bit more to do and she has a lot of weight to be involved here. Like she, she's a character who moves this plot and she's not just here and then she goes. She's got a lot to do and she's got, her character's got a lot to answer for. But it's just like such a captivating performance where she doesn't show, she's not, she's never, she's not an actress who's in your face. She's not, she's not given material where she screams, give me another fucking Oscar or give me an Oscar, should I say but she's, she's an actress who takes the material as a character actor would do. And we're seeing that now with Paul Walter Hauser, who's worked with you know, Spike Lee and, and, and um, Clint Eastwood. They're taking material that works for them and, and using their skills in drama to sort of elicit and, and elevate what would be simply just a one-note character. And I'm, I, I just love everything she does in here. She just holds it up. I mean, she's excellent, but I can't talk about this highly enough. I really can't. I, I, I adore bad, bad Education. I think it's, it's definitely one of the best of the year. So talking about disappointing things, I'll just quickly throw out there before we throw it to George. Um, with it being distributed by HBO Max, yes, or HBO, I should say, not HBO Max, um, 
where yes, that means we can't see it on the big screen, which is a big crime of itself. It also makes it ineligible for the Oscars, which I find heartbreaking. Just not thinking about the politics of award season and the actual chances of it being nominated. It is such a good movie and I would love to see, you know, Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney, maybe even Corey Finley get, you know, nods or at least be in the conversation at all. So that's just one of the most heartbreaking things about the release, um, at least for me. You've just broken my heart, Carson. I've just realized that. I can't believe I've just I've just realized that, yeah. Oh, that's, that is heartbreaking. Might get some BAFTA uh, nominations. Oh, you just have to hope for Emmy recognition. I, ju- I just can't believe I've just realized that on air. That is, that is destroyed now. What? Yeah, it's sad because they made it to where uh, streaming titles can be eligible, but if they had a theatrical release and HBO, yeah. since HBO doesn't do that, HBO films are still ineligible, so it's very annoying. It just begs the question then, with this being created, and I'm sorry, George, we will move on in a minute to, to, to your thoughts. I just want to add this little thing, is if this was made and then sold to HBO films, that's one thing. But I, I hope we don't find out this was made like the likes of Universal, Sony, and this was then sold. Because whoever made that decision is is has just made one hell of an error. I'm just I don't I don't know who made it, but it was the case because it premiered at TIFF and then it was bought by HBO. I'm like ninety five percent sure. Oh, okay, so it okay. was sold like that, yeah. Well to that degree then I think I think we we can't argue about anything, but what what a sad state that Hugh Jackman and not only that, Cassandra, as you just said about you know, we just mentioned HBO Max. I mean, this is going to be a film where nobody's going to be able to see it because it's just on Sky. It's locked through a Sky store. It's locked through the HBO films. Is it on HBO Max? I don't know. But it just locks it away for no one be able to see th- these performances. I'm just so sorry for, for Finlay after knowing that because this would have been huge. This could have destroyed at the Oscars. This could have, this could have, this really could have been something special. It really could have been. That's such heart. That's such heartbreaking news, Carson. Yes, yeah, so I suppose I get they get into my um, thoughts on it, and uh, you'll be glad to know that this is by far the best film of the week. So, uh, yeah, I was. I'd liked Thoroughbreds. Uh, Thoroughbreds when it came out, I wasn't totally sold on it, but um, there, there was definitely promise there, and I think I think Finley has realised that in this feature but what what's interesting with a uh, with this is that obviously finley prior to making thoroughbreds is a is a playwright so normally with um with playwrights they obviously write their own screenplays in in this case he doesn't it's um a guy named mike mikowski not mike wazowski mike mikowski uh and i was i was doing some background reading he actually met the uh the real life uh frank is it frank to the the person that Hugh Jackman plays. So obviously he has vested interest in this uh, in this project. So if if you're taking the screenplay off a off a playwright and I think an acclaimed playwright at that, you better make sure that your script is a uh, you good is good. And suffice to say it's very good. It's it's kind of it's got that dynamic wit it's quick as well, but it's not. It's not too. It's not distracted. It's not like as fast as a Sorkin script, but it, it's got elements of that where it's this back and forth. But I think where this really shines, and like Thoroughbreds as well, is the is the visual style. 
and I think more so than some of the other playwright turned directors. So, for instance, Kenneth Lonergan, who made uh, You Can Count On Me and Manchester by the Sea, or even the McDonough brothers in the on the British shores. I think where they make up their like foundations and their their style is very much in the writing. I, I wouldn't necessarily, even though I love both of them, all three of them, I wouldn't necessarily say they're they're visual directors. I think Finley very much is. I think for for someone who's worked in 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 stage after two films to have such a grip on cinematography and I think especially editing this is edited so well like I think I think if this was eligible for the Oscars I think it'd be a shoo-in for an editing nomination come then it just it just breezes along a lot when I was 45 and some of the some of the pans back and the way they isolate uh, figures in the frame and that that was there in thoroughbreds as well but I think more so in this with the the bleachers and like how we how we positions Jackman's character throughout, and then it'll there'll be close-ups as well on his face, because there's a there's a plot arc. I mean, the whole the whole thing revolves around Jackman's character being being two-faced. It's not it's not a spoiler, but there's uh, tangible evidence of literally two faces later on in the film. So I think thematically that works really well. I echo much of about the performances. I, I think this is probably Jackman's best performance. In his career, I think the only other two that even come close for me are, are Logan and uh, Prisoners. But I think this one is much more... I think where he's playing rugged characters in that, especially in Prisoners, I think this is much more suited to Jackman. In, even though he's Australian, he embodies that all-American. You know, it just a smile. He's absolutely perfect for the role. And Johnny as well. Johnny's brilliant. She's not in it that much in the second half. She, I'm not going to go into spoilers, but she's very much in the front half, not so much in the second half. But her impact is is felt throughout. And I think I think if they were eligible, I wouldn't bank on it, but they, they would definitely be a they would be contenders for me. I d I don't know if they would make it through. It's hard to judge this early in the year. I don't think it screams out as a as an Oscar film, just by the, the subject matter. But I mean, if it in my book, I mean, they're both they'd both be in there easily. Well, it's absolutely no question. The cinematography is great. I love the way he, as I said, the way he flips between shots and the editing, and some of the tracking shots are fantastic in this as well. It's not as, uh, I'd say, it's not as obvious the cinematography in this as what it was in Thoroughbreds. I think Thoroughbreds was much more maybe colourful and played with lighting more than this. But I think this is, I think what this does is uh, the camera work is imbued in the fabric of the film. And I think it gives it a rhythm that it never lets up. The the one drawback, and it's it's really hard to put a finger on for me, is that it kind of reminded me of Spotlight, where everything is so solid in it that actually nothing leaps out. It's one of those, you just watch it and there's all... It's, it's so good that nothing absolutely leaps out of you. And for some reason, it's it's stopping, like, getting in that next level for me. Like, it's, it's, for me, it's not the social network. I see the, the comparisons. I think this is much more of a... I think this is much more maybe satirical than, than the social network. And I think the setting in a school helps that. And there's, there's a... Uh, 
there's a, a kind of fact at the end. I'm not not going to go into it, but there's a there's a like a tidbit of information right at the end, and it, I was genuinely floored by it. It's kind of it's one of those like in stuff in like the Big Short and the uh, documentaries about uh, the financial financial crash and yeah to say I mean it would annoy anyone I think and after watching the film it does make you despair and I think it gives you that gut punch at the end that even what you've seen has it actually had repercussions beyond kind of surface level ones so I I think that that really works so yeah I, I mean it's definitely in this in this year especially. It's def- definitely right up there with the with the best films of the year for me. It's just it's just really solid all the way through. I don't. There's not a glaring fault in it really, which is why it's kind of. I, I just can't say it's a masterpiece. I don't. There's just something stopping me from saying it's a masterpiece, but I haven't really got a fault with it to be honest. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a weird one though. George, I, I just think you uh, when you said about. You know, this being one of Hugh Jackman's best performance, I think you may have just missed, like, you know, Pan and Van Helsing out of there. So I just want to just, just point I'll, out. I'll you. kind of separate those. I, I, I mean, it's an unfair game comparing to, comparing to those. No, Long time ago just, as well. Just, to, just you know, mention Swordfish every so often, you know, one of his best, yeah, yeah. best classics. Yeah. You absolutely have to. It'd be a crime not to mention those films. Um both of you mentioned these scenes that are like jaw dropping. And I think whether you talk about um, the scene at the apartment or whether you talk about the fact at the end, that is one of the best parts of the film is how many moments are just absolutely incredibly jaw dropping. And you just, it takes your breath away, whether it's comedic, like a scene with a a sandwich um, or tense, like a scene between Hugh Jackman and the school news reporter um, and a conversation they have later in the film uh, there is the scene at a club that leads to a heartbreaking scene at the inside a car. Um, and there's so many scenes in this film that are just jaw-droppingly beautiful and haunting. Um, I saw this film a few months ago, considering I live in America, so I could see it way before you guys. Um, and it's those scenes that just stick with me, those quiet kind of calm scenes where it's just like pure emotional catharsis that really, really stood out to me. Um, and just makes the film haunting, even you know months after seeing the film. It's a movie that stays with you, which is a really hard thing for films to do, and something I can't really say any other release in 2020 off the top of my head has been able to do in the same matter. Um, it's beautiful in that way. I just wanted to add quickly that um, obviously Jackman and Johnny are going to take the plaudits and rightly so, but the, the supporting cast is really good here as well. Like Ray Romano is a, he has quite a sizable role. He's, he's very good kind of following up on his roles in like the big sick. Uh, Raphael Cassell, who's obviously uh, famous for blind spotting plays a role here that um, is like the polar opposite of that. I think he's, uh, I'm not, not going to go into spoilers regarding his, his role in the narrative, but his, his temperament is completely the opposite of that to his character in, in Blood Spot, and he's quite calm in this. He's, uh, I mean, he's far more likeable than that character, but I think he's really good. And um, Geraldine Viswanathan, I mean, I've probably absolutely butchered that. She plays the, the young budding journalist. And uh, I saw her in a film a few years ago called uh, Emo the Musical, and uh, 
she's come on leaps and bounds since then, and she's she's really good in this as as the young journalist who's like investigating, uh, he's committing an invest, investigation in the school. She's really likable. Her relationship with her father, which is links in with the narrative as well, that gives it more um, thematic weight, really subtly as well. It's just kind of a scene here or there, but it really does add to the to the wider narrative. So yeah, I mean, the the I think if, yeah, as, as we were saying about awards, I think this would be a shoe in for Sagan uh, Sag Ensemble, like an absolute shoe in for that because the, the cast is brilliant. I mean, I think we're just going to have to be content with it getting Emmy Emmy nominations and I think given given the state of the industry I'd, I'd be surprised if it doesn't walk like absolutely waltz to some of the uh, the awards at the Emmys but yeah yeah it's I mean it is it is excellent it really is excellent not to sound even more unprofessional but I'm just you just re- just I can't believe I've just realized from what you've just said that that's Raphael Cassell who was in blind spawning that's just that's just hit me again. I didn't even realise that was the same actor. I had to double I mean, take. Yeah, but when I, 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 was, I, I did thought as well. I recognised him, and then I, I was like, "Yeah, that's definitely the guy." Blind spot, and, but he's he's really good, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, there we talk about tonal shifts. I mean, that's two very distinct performances there. And again, very much we spoke about David Diggs um, with, on the Hamilton a, a few weeks ago. What's what? I mean, nobody should be afraid to, to say that. And this new wave of acting, these performances like David Diggs, Raphael Gussel. I mean, again, Geraldine Viswanathan, which I, again, I've butchered, I do apologise. I'm, I'm English, so it's, so it's George. You, you did a better job of it than me. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I'm, just, I'm just so excited to see where these performances go next. I mean, these actors and actresses are just excellent. I mean, even, even um, I believe it's Nat Wolf is here just for a, a little small cameo. But even then, it's just, it's convicted with just, excellence there's just nothing that, i think i did i'm i understand what you mean george where there's nothing really here to find a negative although i think it's probably just a little too short because i was just so invested but i think we, we should probably just speak on Jodine visvanathan just a little bit because i mean she, she's an actress that's having a, a really good year i mean she was in Halla, which we've reviewed on the site by alina Folds. She's going to be in the upcoming The Broken Hearts Gallery, which is going to be one of the first films to come out of uh, quarantine lockdown. But she's done some very interesting work. I mean, she's worked in Blockers. She's done The Package. She's, she's, she's sort of having a revival now. Not that her career was going anywhere. It shouldn't, but she's, she was in a comedic sort of sensibility, and now she's going for the, for the mixture of drama and, and, and comedy. I'm just here. I think her character is slightly underwritten, and again, it's a, it's a film that specifically falls on on that thing of nuances. There's all the subtlety everywhere here, and I think that's just one aspect. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna slightly criticize this film, it's it's that the film doesn't really explore that notion with the father. It's a one pivotal scene, and even then, I think the film slightly forgets forgets about her towards the end. But I think I think the film, after if you read about, it, I think she's a com. A comp- I think she's a, a character that's built on quite a few different people, so understandably there. But then again, you have free reign to sort of go in whatever direction she has. But it's 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 a film that I am I'm I I can't I think all three of us have, I can't speak highly enough of. It's just a shame that perhaps we won't get 
to see it have that recognition when you have a film like Green Book that, that gets gets the the, uh, the golden statue out when you know maybe that that would have been far more deserving of belonging on HBO films. But to round out Coppercast, we'd like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Carson, let's start with you this week. So we talked about three generally like more serious films this week. So a recent film I saw that's more lighthearted if you just want to take a nice fun like hour-long break is We Bear Bear the Movie. Um, it is based on the We Bear Bears TV show on Cartoon Network that's had a pretty good following. Very witty, fun show, very simple. And the movie is very similar. It's like an hour and 10 minutes long. Um, and it's just genuinely so sweet and so just funny and charming. In these crazy times, if you don't want to watch some big action set piece or serious drama showing just like very morally questionable characters and you're just having a rough time, just throw on We Bear Bears the movie. It's legitimately just fun. And it has enough heart to where it feels like it has at least something of substance going for it. It's not just an empty experience. Um, it might not be, you know, the most like technical masterpiece you'll find, but it's an enjoyable film. And I think especially right now with everything going on in the world, um, just some days you need a film like Weaver Bears the movie and I enjoyed it. So I'll throw that one out there. And George? Yeah, so I think uh, much of what Carlson said could actually apply to the the pick I'm going to do this week. Uh, it was mentioned on the Pride special a couple of weeks ago. So I finally checked it out. And uh, it's But I'm a Cheerleader, which is a, uh, I mean, I think it's garnered like a, a cult following now, but I've only just seen it. The best way to describe it would be a light-hearted comedy on the absurdity of gay conversion therapy with the production design of Cat in the Hat, which is um, quite a bold claim, but I think if anyone watched it, they would, um, I think they would understand. So, yeah, it's not really like anything I've seen before. It's made in 1999, I believe. It's very much of its time, but I think uh, the comedy is great. The characters are really likable. The the visuals are bold, and RuPaul is genuinely amazing in it as well, as um as one of the as one of the teachers at this at this uh, school. So it's on Amazon Prime for UK uh, viewers. So if anyone wants to check it out, it's called But I'm a Cheerleader. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? You can find me at, on Letterboxd. My name is just Carson Tamar or on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews. Um, and you can find a bunch of my reviews over on Clapper. So if you're interested in my thoughts, you know, check them out. You can find me on Twitter under Letterboxd at George Lewis 97, Lewis with an extra S. You can find me on both Twitter and Letterboxd at Jack Luke Sharp. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find out social links on Clapper at Facebook and at Clapper LTD on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema.